How steady are you? How steady are you as a person, as an individual? If you're part of a family, how steady is your family? Do you change? Do your emotions change? Does your mood, your attitude, your outlook on life change? Is it up one day, down the next? Some of us are more prone to change than others. Some of us are more steady than others. We live in a world that is very much like this, isn't it? If you think just about nature and the natural world around us, it is a world that is in constant change. The tides come in and the tides go out. We go through winter, spring, summer, and fall. The flowers bloom, they die and fall to the ground. Birds move from one place to another depending on the weather. If you think about history itself, history, though it has been said to repeat itself, it is in a constant change. Kings rise and kings fall. Nations rise and nations fall. Yes, history may repeat itself, but it is never the same. It is always changing. And then if we think about ourselves, personally, we change. Some of you sit in the pew this morning with aches in your back that were not there last year. But not just physically do we change. Mentally, emotionally, and spiritually we change as well. If we're honest with ourselves, we are often more unsteady than we would like to admit, aren't we? Well, this morning, friends, as we come again to God's Word in the book of Hebrews in particular, we are reminded that though the world changes, though history changes, though we change, we serve a God who never changes. We serve a God who is always the same. In particular this morning, particularly, we're going to look at how we serve and worship a Savior who never changes. That being God over all, blessed forever, He is still yet Emmanuel, God with us. And this is where Hebrews, as we get to the end of the book, seeks to anchor its final commands for us. Seeks to anchor its final commands in this very truth that Christ is forever the same. That He endures and He is worthy of our trust as a rock. Friends, the reality is if this truth is in fact, truth, if it is true that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, then it actually does change our very lives. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13, as we've come to this final chapter in this sermon letter of sorts, we have been considering this practical side of Jesus being better, what it actually means for our lives. In this final section of the book, the author, the preacher of this letter has turned to apply it, to give us some so what's, to give us some commands that, that should work themselves out in our lives. And last week we looked at the bookends of the section we're going to look at today, particularly as it relates to elders, to leaders in the church and how we are to follow them and how we are to imitate them as they follow and imitate Christ. 
But we see this morning as we come to this section that there is more to the Christian life than simply following some men that God has given to the church. Just to give you an outlook on where we're to go from here, we actually just have two more sermons after this morning in the book of Hebrews. Next Sunday, we're going to get to the final section, what we call the, the benediction in verses 20 through 25. We're going to end the book next Sunday. And then the following Sunday, there is one more sermon in the book of Hebrews. We're actually going to do an entire sermon on the whole book. So we're going to recap and revisit the entire book in just one sermon and review all that we have learned in this book. It, I don't know if you guys realize it or not, but we really began looking at the book of Hebrews back in January of 2020. So it's been some time since we've been in this book. Some of you weren't even here then, okay? So, so there is a lot that we have covered in that time. And so in a couple of weeks, we're just going to revisit the whole book and summarize all that is there and try to draw out a few more truths and seeing the book in, in all of its glory. But this morning, again, we come to this section here in verses 8 through 16. So if you have a Bible, again, go ahead and turn there. Hebrews 13, 8 through 16. If you have a pew Bible and you need to find where that is quickly, it is on page 949. And friends, as you arrive there, let me invite you to stand once more out of the honor of the reading of God's Word today. Hear now the word of the Lord from Hebrews 13, 8 through 16. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priests as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Friends, you may be seated. There are really four sections to this these few verses here that I want us to explore this morning. And, and let me break them down for you here at the beginning. So if you want to write them down and take notes, uh, you're more than welcome to do that. We're going to be looking at four things. First, who is Jesus? It's a pretty basic question. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you've, you've arrived at a good place because that is the first question we want to answer is, who is Jesus? And we see this captured really in verse 8. The second thing I want us to see is receiving His strength in verses 9 and 10 bearing his reproach in verses 11 through 14, and praising his name in verses 15 and 16. So who is Jesus? That's what we want to get at first. And then in light of who he is, receiving his strength, bearing his reproach, and praising his name. And my prayer for us as we look at each of these things, that we would, even in this moment right now, in this time we have together this morning, behold Christ and allow who he is to mark and shape and form who we are. 
And that is really what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That who Jesus is would shape and mark and define who we are here and now and for all eternity. So let's jump into it by asking that first question. Who is Jesus? You see there back in verse 8, there is the answer to the question. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now what is the aim of this statement? Why does he bring this up here in the middle of these commands? He's been giving commands throughout the, the chapter, uh, chapter 13, saying many different things, like in the very beginning of chapter 13, let brotherly love continue. He goes on to talk about hospitality. He goes on to talk about marriage. Last week he looked at this idea of remembering our leaders and submitting and obeying to them. But here in the middle of this chapter, he gives this statement. Full stop, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now it's important to remember the context here that just the, the prior verse just before, verse 7, he says to remember your leaders. We didn't touch on this much last week, but there is this note here of remembrance that, 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 that accentuates that leaders come and go. That, that, that I may serve as elder for some amount of time and the Lord may call me home. At that point, your remembering of me will, will have to be intentional. And so remembering has this side of it where the leaders that God gives the church are going to come and go, whether God leads them somewhere else or takes them home. And so he says now in light of that, in light of your leaders coming and going, those being those that you have to remember because they've gone on, there is one who is the same. There is the great shepherd, the chief shepherd who will not leave. He is the same yesterday, today and forever. What do we take these mentioned moments to mean? This idea of yesterday, today, and forever. There are some who have tried to attach specific points to these words. Things like, oh, this time of yesterday, it means during the Old Testament. Or this time of yesterday means the time when Jesus was here in his first advent, his earthly ministry. Or, or this idea of yesterday, well, it actually is yesterday, literally. But it seems to me that, that this phrase is, is not one to be teased out. We can certainly do that, and I'll, I'll make different applications throughout the sermon, but it's not the main point. Instead, these three words, yesterday, today, and forever, are meant, it seems, by the preacher to be taken all together. It, it's a phrase that is a, a giant umbrella that catches this great reality of who our Savior is. That the focus of this verse is not on the times. Don't get hung up on those. But the focus is on Jesus Himself. The focus is on who Christ is and what He is. As Revelation 1-4 says, Grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come. So what does this mean then? Well, it, to give you a big theological word, you may want to write this down. It's worth searching and, and considering in light of the whole Bible. And we're going to think about this later in the summer in our Sunday night series of understanding who God is. But it gets us this idea of what we call the immutability of God. The, the unchangingness of God. That He never changes. That He is the same. Friends, you've seen this theme run throughout this entire service, haven't you? As we've heard a call to worship from the Psalms, as we read from Isaiah together, as we've sung our songs, great is His faithfulness, that there is no shadow of turning in Thee. And now we see that this is not just true of the triune God of Father, Son, and Spirit, but here in Hebrews, which is the focus of the entire book, it is Jesus who is unchanging, 
who is immutable, who is the same. Now, why is this so important for him to bring up here? Because he's about to make some commands and some applications for how they are to live in the world in which they're called to live. We've noticed this over and over throughout the book. It is, it is the reason, the occasion that the book has been given, the book of Hebrews, is that these believers are coming from a Jewish background. It is written to Hebrew Christians. And so for them, they are completely and utterly aware of the ways that their worship has changed throughout the ages of the ways that God has led them and called them and that He has spoken to them and they have received different revelation from God in different ways. In fact, isn't it so interesting that the book here in drawing to a close says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And notice how does the same exact idea at the very beginning. At many times and in various ways, God spoke to our fathers. The book opens by noting the changing nature in which God has revealed Himself progressively throughout redemptive history. But in these final days, He has spoken to us by His Son, the Son here who is noted in the end as the one who does not change. And Hebrews here is arguing that Jesus is better now, that Jesus is better now because of His steadiness, His unchangingness. You think about a river. We have several rivers around these parts. If you go to, say, the Roanoke River and, and take a look at it at a certain point one year, and, and you may come back the next year, and the embankment in which that river ran along has changed. There's new vegetation there, or, or the bank has expanded out because of, of flooding and, and rising waters. But what is the same, no matter how much the embankment or the edge of the river may change, the river is still there. And so we see the same here in Jesus' unchangingness of His character. That He is the untiring river that continues on. What He was in the yesterday of the eternal past, when dwelling with the Father and the Spirit, He continued at the time of His own incarnation, when the Word became flesh, when still God dwelling with men on the earth, and He shall continue to be forevermore, that Jesus is the same. This is what we mean when we sing Rock of Ages, that He is and will always be the rock of all ages. He does not change, even though in His human nature He became the man of sorrows. He took on a new side of Himself. His appearance was so marred, as Isaiah 52, 14 says, beyond human semblance in His form, beyond that of the children of mankind. In the glory of His place in the Godhead, it is as we sang that there is no shadow of turning with Thee, that He changest not. As we're going to see in Psalm 2 in a few weeks from Pastor Sean that amid the convulsions of the nations, amid the fluctuations of human thought and feeling, Jesus remains the same King. The march of the events of history make no change in Him. As Psalm 29.10 says, The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as King forever. 
As, I, as Psalm 95 says, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. And we can pick up on so many other psalms and the phrases within them that note the steadiness, the stability, the immutability of our God, particularly in Jesus Christ. And so what does this mean? What does this mean for us? That Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Well, it means that His mission then is unchanging. You just consider this, that as the Word, before He became flesh, as the logos of God, the, the logic, the very mind, the expression of God, as the Word, His mission has always been to draw a people back to God in repentance and faith. And then in His incarnation coming as the Messiah, He came and His mission was what? To preach the good news of the kingdom of God and then to give His life to purchase those who would be a part of that kingdom to again draw them to God. And now as King, crucified, dead, buried, risen, and now ascended to the right hand of the Father, what is He doing it is the exact same thing. He is building His kingdom through calling a people to Himself. A chosen race and a holy nation. A royal priesthood redeemed from the nations. His mission, friends, has remained the same in light of who He is. He's called God's people back to the Lord to build His everlasting kingdom. And so, friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you are not a follower of this Jesus, we want you to know Him as He is. That He is the steady Savior. That He is the Messiah who never changes. That He is faithful and that He is good and that every word that has proceeded from His mouth will be fulfilled. And so in your weariness and your sorrows, and your doubts, and your questions. Here is the one that you can run to. This means that as He was in the days of His earthly ministry, so He continues to be today. And this is such a great hope for Christians as we read the Gospels. In the fall, we're going to be getting into the Gospel of John, and this is one of the things that I want us to see as a church so much. This is why we can have so much hope when we read of Jesus' first advent in His earthly ministry here. It's because as He was then... So he continues to be. Did he not call the weary to himself? What a great comfort in living and loving this Redeemer can bring. Did he not give assurance to the doubting? Did he not teach those who were in great need of wisdom? Did he not dry the tears of mourners by being the resurrection and the life? Did He not carry along those who were stubborn and hard-headed? Did He not feed those who were hungry? And friends, as He was, so He continues to be a trustworthy Christ. So let us come. Let us come to Him. See, the expectation here in Hebrews of this truth is that His unchangingness changes everything. 
This is the theme of all of Hebrews. And so in, in some sense, what, what we have seen throughout this entire book is now summarized here in this little phrase. And what has been taught to us has now been applied. So what does this mean for us? Well, the aim of the entire book is to help God's people persevere. And so we see now that the only way we can persevere in faith is to hold on to this foundation. The only way we can endure in, in loving the Lord and serving the Lord and living holy as He is holy is to hold on to the rock of our salvation, to hold on to the anchor that never gives way, to cling to Him who is always there. As Calvin, John Calvin said, he who holds not to, Christ, not to Christ knows nothing but mere vanity. He who holds not to Christ knows nothing but mere vanity. And what Calvin's getting at here is this idea that, that anything else we hold on to, it's vanity. It is a mist, it is a vapor, and it passes away. But here's one that we can hold to that will not. Friends, there is no other way to walk in wisdom other than fixing all of our hearts and all of our minds on Christ alone. And so if Jesus endures, then what? Well, let's look now at the three things that he holds out. There are many things that he holds out. We could stand and do a whole sermon on just verse 8 and, and, and expose all of the things that Jesus being unchanging holds out for us. But the author of Hebrews focuses here on three things. First, there in verses 9 and 10, how we receive his strength. Look back at verse 9. Do not be led away, here's the command, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened, not by diverse and strange teachings, but by grace. Not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. And so his first encouragement here is knowing Christ, knowing who he is and that he does not change and that he endures, that he is the same, means that we have his grace to give us strength to endure against false teaching, particularly false teaching. And so what, are, what is this false teaching he's drawing out here? He calls it diverse and strange teachings being mentioned here. It's often the same throughout the New Testament. We see this particularly drawn out. Now it's true that there were new diverse and strange teachings happening during this time. But that's not the focus here in Hebrews. He's not, when he says strange, he doesn't mean new but instead, and this is so interesting, he's speaking specifically of the Old Covenant. Do you see that there? We see that there in how he describes it. Not by foods. He's getting at this idea that, of, of what took place in the sacrificial and, and the festival gatherings of the Jewish people. He's taking the Old Covenant law and saying you cannot use what was a part of the Old Covenant as a means of applying New Covenant grace. That to receive New Covenant grace is to not be led astray by those diverse teachings of old. So strange here doesn't mean new, but now foreign and not in step with. So the call here is to not be led away by them. And you guys know this as well as I do as we've looked at this book. That was the great temptation, wasn't it? It was to go back to the teachings of old. This is the problem that these Christians are facing. And so a good question for us in our own context is how might we too be led away? And it, 
here we see the root of the problem is not necessarily the foods themselves, but the belief that they needed something else to strengthen them to endurance. And as far as that goes, friends, we know that those temptations in our own life abound, don't they? That yes, I need Jesus, and Jesus but this, but this thing, but this person, but this work, but this situation. If I have Jesus and this, then I can endure, then I can keep going, then everything will be okay, and I'll be strong and I'll be steady. We know this temptation in parenting. We know this temptation in our marriages. We know this temptation in our friendships and life together as a church and in the world that we live. That if we just have Jesus plus this, then I can endure. But we see here we're called away from that. That the only strength that we need to endure is the strength that comes by grace. It's the strength that comes by grace. You see that there at the end of verse 9. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods. We find here that the truth, the true strength comes from the grace of Jesus Christ. This is not some just general grace. This is not some grace that, that you kind of come up with on your own. This is not just talking about God's grace in, in a general sense, but he's talking specifically about the grace that comes through the unchanging Christ. And he contrasts it with the foods of the old covenant that they were simply pictures, pictures of what the people feasted on. They're a picture of what we really needed in our hearts is the feast of the new covenant. We see, continue to see a picture of this in the Lord's Supper, do we not? We talk about this regularly and just taking this little morsel of bread and this little cup of juice, we're called to feast on Christ. These elements that we're going to take here in a moment do not fill us up physically, but in partaking of them together and reflecting on what they represent, spiritually, we're built up and we're strengthened. They are a gospel protein shake to our hearts. You see this same teaching Jesus himself picks up in John 6. It's one of the hardest teachings that, that his disciples had to wrestle with. And, and because of it, many turned away. Let me, let me just read that passage. Then the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus has just told them, You need to eat my flesh and, and drink my blood. And so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things, catch this, in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And John goes on to write that they, many walked away because of it. But we see here the author of Hebrews drawing the same principle out. Not as Catholics believe, do we believe that this bread and this cup turn into Jesus' literal body and blood. Not as 
Others believe, do we believe that Jesus' literal presence enters into this bread and this cup? But we believe that there is a spiritual feasting that takes place. And it is a feasting on the unchanging Christ. We take up a meal each service to point our hearts and our minds anew to where real strength comes from. As we see here at the end of verse 9, which have not benefited those devoted to them. Speaking of the old covenant foods. We find the contrast here between physical strength of food versus spiritual strength. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 8, food will not commend us to God, for we are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. That there is an abiding benefit then for us in feasting on Christ in our hearts. And so friends, here's the reality, and this is where it finds its root and its anchor in verse 8. That because Jesus is the same, He is always there for our hearts to feast upon. He is always there for us to find strength. That there never comes a moment in your life when Christ is no longer present for you to turn to and for you to take up and to take hope and to take strength and vitality from who He is. So whether you're doing great or you're at the bottom of the barrel today, Christ is there to strengthen you. But the disconnect for them is understandable. It's understandable that after all that they had been through, after all they had seen under the old covenant, these altar sacrifices that were such central to their religious life, it would be difficult for them to understand. Mostly because we see how the altar under the old covenant was central to their life together. The altar was the place where everything that happened in their relationship with God took place. And so he says then there in verse 10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Now, they're thinking, maybe we can find some ongoing strength. You see, you see, you see their thought there. He, he, he's capturing their thought before they even get a chance to say, maybe we can, maybe we can be encouraged. And, and Yeah, we'll, we'll follow Jesus, but also maybe we can get some encouragement from, from the old covenant altar. Maybe we can still go to the synagogue and, and we could see, you know, we can go to the temple and we can see the sacrifices taking place. And we take our own sacrifices there. Maybe we receive some ongoing encouragement if we just do that. And, and then they won't hate us so much. We can still follow Jesus, yeah, but they won't hate us if we go and we partake in the altar still. So the question is, why is he just blowing that idea out of the water here? Why is he blowing the idea that, that they don't need that altar any longer that was the foundation of the Jewish religious life for so long? You've got to think about what this altar represented for them. It's where their right relationship with God was restored in the sacrifices. It is where the priests brought forth these animals and their blood. It is where atonement for sin took place. But we are told now here in verse 10. Friends, look back there. We have an altar. It's not that the altar has been done away with in the Old Covenant as much as it has been replaced. Do you see that? We have an altar. Yes, there is still an altar that exists. And we have an altar from which those who serve the tent, that being the priest, that, that, that they have no right to eat at this altar that we eat at. What is the altar that he's speaking of then? Is it the altar in Jerusalem that they were to go back to? No. 
See, the question is not what is this altar, but who is this altar? That Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the old covenant. That He is the great high priest as we have seen. That He is the true Lamb of God who is sacrificed. But now we see that He is the altar. That He is the true and better altar. That He is the one that we come to to find our relationship with God restored. He is the one that we come to to be spiritually nourished. And He is always accessible. Because it is by His blood that atonement is made. You think, but Pastor, all this emphasis on strength. I thought we were supposed to be humble and, and weak and always walking around with our heads down. Woe is me. I'm such a mess. No, you see throughout God's Word, especially here, that we are called to be strong people. Friends, don't miss that. We need that so much in our world today that as a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, the expectation of the New Testament is that you would be strong. That you would be spiritual heavyweights. That you would walk with your head up and your hands ready as we're going to come to see in just a moment. And so there's the question, why do you need so much strength that only Jesus can provide? Well, we see that in the very next section. So let's look at bearing his reproach. Back in verse 11, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. Now there's some phrases there, so let me, let me summarize what the main phrase is and, and kind of gloss over the others. For the bodies of those animals are burned outside the camp. Okay, there's the whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin. Those, those are details that he's bringing out about these animals they're speaking of. But what he wants us to see primarily is what takes place with those animals in the end. Yes, they are brought in by the high priest. Yes, their blood was for atonement. But that's not the key that he's zeroing in on here. What he's zeroing in on here is what takes place with the carcasses afterwards is that they are taken outside of Jerusalem. That's what he means here, outside the camp. They're taken outside the city, and they were burned. We saw that in our public scripture reading today. But he gets us to understanding why we need strength. This, this idea here, this reality of what took place outside the camp, gets us to understand why we need the strength of an unchanging Jesus. He does it here by first reminding us of what happened to the animals after they were sacrificed we just saw this in our Bible reading plan. Hopefully you've been following along with that. But we just got through the, the first five books of the Bible, which really highlights this. We heard it read in Leviticus just a moment ago. But we see this particularly. Let me just read this for us because it is the, the pinnacle of the Pentateuch. It is Leviticus 16.27. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. That's what he's talking about here. We're told here that what ends up happening after atonement is made. So what's the deal with the things being burned outside the camp? Why does that happen? Well, maybe we'll start there. Why did things need to be burned outside the camp? What did it show? What was it a picture of? Well, one, it showed the picture of, of the inability of sin to be in God's presence. That these things that were dead were represented what sin had brought into the world. That the wages of sin is death. And death 
And sin cannot be in the presence of a holy God. And so by them taking it outside the camp showed the, the pure holiness of God. And not just were they taken outside the camp, but they were burned. What does the burning aspect show? They didn't dig a pit and throw them in it and cover it back up and leave it. They didn't just throw it to the side and expect the flies and the bugs to eat it. They burned it. Why? Because it shows that our God is a consuming fire. That He will pour out holy judgment. Friends, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, or maybe you are and you need to hear this, we see here in this burning outside the camp the very sinfulness of sin. It sets it up for a contrast with Jesus Christ, doesn't it? Look back at verse 12. Let's trace it. So those animals that were sacrificed, they were burned outside the camp. And pick up verse 12. So Jesus. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through His own blood. The first thing we find here is that Jesus went outside first. Do you notice that? It's a change. Jesus was not sacrificed and killed inside the camp and then had His body carried outside. No, He went outside first. Jesus did not go to the altar made with hands, but was taken outside to Mount Golgotha, the place of the skull. He's taken outside of Jerusalem where the common criminals were killed. And so in saying here, the author of Hebrews, that Jesus suffered outside the camp, He is equating it to the burning of the animals. You see here how He's exposing the great work of Christ in redemption. It's what Paul captures in 2 Corinthians 5.21, that He who knew no sin became sin. That in Jesus going outside the camp to die, He becomes sin. He goes to the place of death and destruction. Christ was consumed then. He was consumed not with earthly fire, but with the very wrath of God, drinking it to the full amount. But why? We find now that it has a purpose, doesn't it? So Jesus also suffered outside the gate. Here's the purpose. In order to sanctify the people. Do you see this there? That this is why Jesus died. Don't, don't miss this. It's so key to our faith. That Jesus died on purpose, for a purpose, for a people. That He died to be making us holy. That Christ's suffering means our sanctifying and this word sanctify is a word that we use often to talk about growth and holiness, but that's not what it means here. This idea of sanctifying here, it, it means to dedicate, to purchase, to be made holy and set apart and purified. So we find that Jesus does this in His death. And we find out how there at the end. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people. How? Through His blood. Through His own blood. Friends, don't miss this, that there is a Savior, an unchanging Savior, who died for you for a reason. His death is the way and the means to our entering the new covenant kingdom. This is Hebrews summarized in a phrase that Jesus is better, that He is the better sacrifice. But pastor, isn't the author just repeating himself now? Isn't he? I mean, 
He gets, he, he's, he's like you when you get to the, the conclusion of a letter and you just start saying the same thing you've already said in the sermon over and over and over again. Is that what he's doing here? Is that, can, he, can he not just land the plane and finish this thing up? No, friends. There's more here. We see this in verses 13 and 14. Look back there. If Jesus is the one who went outside the camp, who died to sanctify a people through his own blood, therefore... Here's what you are to do about it. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Now, what he's not arguing for here is that we all hop on a plane and take a tour of Jerusalem. He's not saying that we need to go over to Jerusalem and and check things out. No, there is a bigger spiritual reality held out. All of that understanding about what took place outside the camp and what Jesus did there sets us up for this command found here. You realize to be inside the camp, to be inside the city of Jerusalem was to be a citizen, was to have full rights, to be in a blessed place. This makes the command all the more heavy for those Hebrews, doesn't it? First, that they are to go to him outside the camp. What does this mean? It means that all of their rights and their privileges were to be renounced. That anything in their life that was inconsistent with Christ and His new covenant commands and all that He had called them to were to be abandoned. That He called them away from the old ways and called them into His everlasting kingdom. To go outside the camp to Christ is to leave behind all that they had known And so he's ending the sermon here by focusing on what they are to do now. Where are they to go after receiving all of this wisdom about how Jesus is better? Paul picks up the same idea in Philippians 3, verse 4. He says, if anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul says, I, I had all of that. I knew all of that. That was me. In verse 7 he says, but whatever gain I had, I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for His sake. I have suffered the loss of all things. What is the all things He's speaking of there? Particularly all of the rights that He had as a Jew. I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Friend, I wonder if you see all of the good things of your own life as nothing when compared to the surpassing glory of being able to go to God in Christ. We see then that we are called in going to bear the reproach of Christ. This is a reality we've come to know more and more that being unashamed of the cross of Christ will lead to a bearing of our own cross, will it not? Now, we are not called to die as a sacrifice for the sins of people. That's not what we are being called here to. We are not called to give our lives as a means to bring people salvation. No, instead, we are calling to give our own lives 
Some physically, we have seen this. But all spiritually, giving our lives to following Christ as a mark of obedience to Him. A following in the narrow pathway of our older brother. Of following the way that he has gone. And going outside the camps. That the call of Christ is a call to spiritual arms and warfare. This is what we intend with church membership. That, that, that we want to, as a church, we want to be honest about the expectations of being a part of this body of believers. That we are soldiers for Christ in a spiritual warfare. That we are bearing spiritual arms to fight for the kingdom of God in our own hearts, in our own lives, in the lives of our family, and the lives of one another to the ends of the earth. And we see finally then that we are to expect this reproach, this hate, this bearing because of the city that we seek. See how that verse ends, verse 14. For we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Friends, if Christ is unchanging, then we should expect strength from Him. We should expect hatred because of Him. We should expect a home that is to come. This is not our final destination. This is not where we set our feet. This is not where we put down our roots spiritually. And so in light of that, how are our relationships with God and man to be then affected? This is the final thing we see here in verses 15 and 16. We see that just because we are seeking a heavenly city that is to come, it does not mean that we don't seek to bless the world in which we live. He takes up sacrificial language again here. It's very interesting. Twice he uses the word sacrifice, showing what a life of sacrifice looks like when we have been captured by Christ's sacrifice. See it verse, first there in verse 15. Through him then let us continually offer up, here it is, a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. The first sacrifice is a sacrifice of praise, uh, I'm sorry, of praise that is born on our lips. We find that the very nature of gospel obedience is a, a, a nature of thankfulness, of gratefulness, of gratitude. It is why we have a prayer of thanksgiving in every service. It is that the very nature of being purchased by Christ should lead us to praise God, to thank God, to give Him the glory that He is due. Friends, we see that despite what the world may want us to believe and its plurality and its many pathways to God, that there's no true worship of God, that there's no true and right way to praise God aside then from knowing Jesus as the unchanging Savior. So on the other side then, this means that the more that we see Christ, the more we will sing His praises. The more that we come to know Christ, to meditate on Christ, to love Christ, to desire Christ, the greater our praise of God will spring forth. Now I realize not all of you are singers. That's okay. Maybe I'll use this moment pastorally to say, I don't care if you're a singer, we still want you to sing loud. But I realize that not everybody is a singer. That's not primarily what's being focused on here. When he talks about praise, he's not talking about clapping our hands and stomping our feet and harmonizing together. No, it is a life of praise. 
We see this because we see that we're called to do this continually. Now the expectation of the New Testament is not that you be like the seven dwarfs and whistle while you work. So what does it mean to offer praise continually if he's not intending for us just to be singing all the time? Which we, we should be, and I, I like that idea, but there's something more here. He shows the fight of it. That to live a life of praising God is something we have to continually be focused on and fighting towards. And think about this in our parenting. Here's a great question for you, moms and dads. In the way that you parent your children, or do you parent in a way that praises God? That gives God the glory? That exalts Him as much in your own life and the lives of your kids? This, this, in a sense, in a phrase, is what evangelism itself is. That when we share the good news of Jesus Christ, we're simply praising God for the work that He has done in us and through us because of Christ. Because of what Christ has come and what Christ has done. This is discipleship in a phrase. That getting into the Word together as brothers and sisters, we are pointing one another to who our God is in Christ so that we may praise Him together. And finally, we are told that this sacrifice of praise is a fruit of a certain kind of lips. As the Legacy Standard Bible has this verse, the fruit of lips that confess His name. And I think that's a really good translation of that word, acknowledge or confess. It gets this idea of a public declaration. I've recently been convicted of this myself, and here's where you can hold me accountable. Having five kids, people say stuff. In the store, wherever, out and about, people say, oh man, you know, the one we always get is, your hands are full, right? Oh man, your hands are full. Or, man, are all those kids yours? <laughs> and no, I picked a few up on the way here. I just found their sound side of the road, threw them in the car. We figured, why not? And one of the things that God's been convicting me of recently is how I've not used those opportunities to share the gospel. That the fruit of my lips is not acknowledging His name. That no, you know why we have all these kids? And while we're seeking to have smiles on our face, and maybe you call us at a bad point, and not everybody has a smile on their face, but our aim is to be joyful people who love being together. Do you know why we love our children? Because of Jesus. That's why. And there's no other reason in and of ourselves. In fact, if you saw us on our worst days, you'd see us relying on our own strength, and we wouldn't have a smile on our face. And there would not be praise on our lips. But whenever there is, it's because of Jesus. And this is what he's calling us to, a life of praising God for the work that he has done. Not just in giving us children, but primarily and chiefly in giving us salvation in Christ. And we see then how this rolls over into the second call of sacrifice. Let's close by looking at verse 16. Do not neglect to do good and share what you have for such sacrifices. There it is again are pleasing to God. So the final call here, before he moves to ending the letter, is a call of service. That praising God with our lips should roll over into serving one another in our lives, to sharing what we have been given. This word neglect has been used multiple times here in this letter. We find that there's a call here to give our lives away in doing good and seeing others love and follow Jesus more. 
and welcoming one another into our lives by sharing what God has blessed us with. In a very real way, this is what we've tried to capture here in our church's covenant. It's not just some things that we like putting on paper. In fact, let me read a section of our church covenant. It says, We further promise to watch over one another in brotherly love, to remember each other in prayer, to serve each other in sickness and distress, to cultivate Christian compassion and courtesy in speech, to be slow to take offense, but always ready for reconciliation and mindful of the command of our Savior to secure it without delay. Friends, that's exactly what we find here, isn't it? That we are called to serve one another, to lay down our lives for each other, to welcome one another into the abundance of what God has provided for us. And he says that these sacrifices are pleasing to God. Friend, I wonder if you're aiming to please the Lord. In some of circles we find ourselves in, people don't like that phrase. They think it sounds works-based, sounds moralistic, that you would seek to please the Lord. That means that you're trying to earn God's favor and you're trying to earn your salvation. That's not what this means. No, what's being called here is that in light of being purchased by a Savior who never changes, that you would live your life to be pleasing to Him. Because of what He has done in your life, you would give your life to glorifying Him and praising Him and serving those around you. So let's return back to the question. Are you a steady person? Are you unchanging? I'm not. Never will be. Not on this side of glory. But even so, we know one who isn't. One who is always the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. He is the rock of ages. And being so, He provides us with all the strength that we need. He is a Savior who is there with us in the hate-filled battles of this world. And He is the bringer of praise to our lips and service to our hands. And this is what we need. This is what our culture, our ever-changing and ever-in-upheaval culture needs, is a never-changing Christ. It's the gospel message to us this morning that we carry from this place. It's timeless and it's timely. It is a message that we hold on to with generations before and that we deliver to the generation in which we live. So as we come, as fickle and feeble as we are, let us look to the one who is strong and kind and never changing. Let us pray. Father, we come before you because of our never changing Savior who is seated at your right hand even now, living for us and for your glory. We come to you now praying and asking, Lord, that you would awaken hearts, some for the very first time, even in this moment, to who Jesus is, that you would rekindle those flames within our hearts that have grown weak and smoldering. God, for those of us who are bruised and beaten by the world, for those of us who are being lured away by the glitter of this world, for those who are stuck in sin and unrepentant, we pray that you would soften hearts and that you would draw back to our Savior Christ. May we see Him and behold Him as He is, the rock who never changes.
And let us cling to him, finding a sure and steady anchor. Even in this moment, we do pray. In Jesus' name, amen.